Saturday morning, Chicago. Four days after the Department of Homeland Security officially released its new policies on deporting undocumented immigrants. This is a workshop for the people targeted by those policies at the Mexican consulate. And it's packed. They had over 100 seats in this room. And when those filled, they had a second room and then a third. People stand in the back. Muy buenos días tengan todos ustedes. Good morning to all of you, says an official from the consulate, Carlos Valero Polino. La verdad, eh, no esperábamos tanta gente. Truth is, we didn't expect this many people. Pero también entendemos que la situación es preocupante y es por eso que ustedes están aquí. But we understand the situation is worrisome, and that's why you're here. The president has been saying over and over that his new deportation rules are targeted at drug dealers, murderers, gang members. But if you simply read the guidelines, they say in black and white, that's not what they do. The enforcement priorities now include all kinds of people who are not drug dealers, gang members, or serious criminals of any kind. Nearly anybody who's undocumented is covered. And it's been widely reported some of these non-criminals have been picked up already. Lots of people don't know this, but Chicago is a very Mexican city. Over half a million people with Mexican roots. A fourth of them undocumented. And the consulate sees itself as their ally. We care about you and your kids' future, one official says to the crowd which is definitely not the message they've been getting lately from the American government. The consulate convened this panel explaining, OK, here's how to plan for the possibility that you'll get detained and deported. Like, OK, if you're taken, what will happen to your kids? How do you plan for that? Un poder es un documento que te permite darle... A lawyer explains how to sign over the power of attorney to somebody to take care of your kids or how to make somebody their temporary guardian. Another speaker explained what to do with your home and bank accounts if you're deported. Yet another, what if you own a business here in the States? An organizer named Erendira Rendon told the crowd that if immigration shows up at their door, don't let them in unless they have a signed and dated judge's warrant. Usually they don't. And she made the crowd practice, in English, what to say through the door. Okay, practica. I do not consent to your entry. I do not consent to your search of these premises. I do not consent to your search of these promises. I will not the little girl sitting near me said that last one is, I do not consent to your search of these promises. I know it's hard, the speaker says. And that's why you have this. She holds up the packet everybody got. One page has all these same messages in English in big letters. She tells them that if immigration shows up, hold this page against the window. Don't put it up right when you get home today, she says. No llegue a su casa hoy y lo ponga, okay? <laughs> Just put it on the fridge or leave it by the door. After nearly three hours of presenters and Q&A, one of the last stragglers in the room was one of the moms, Kuka. She talked to one of our producers, Lily Sullivan. Kuka says it's been hard watching how the possibility of deportation has affected her kids. She has two daughters. The older one is one of the Dreamer kids, covered by DACA. Deferred action for childhood arrivals, so presumably she's safe for now. Though that could change. She's 19 and a sophomore on a full scholarship at a prestigious college they asked us not to name here. The younger one is a citizen, born here, just 11. And I've explained to her what could happen. And she asks, what am I going to do? And I tell her, you go with me. I won't leave you. I won't leave you anywhere. You're my daughter, and you go with your mom. That's Lily translating. Kuka recorded the workshop to play for her husband later, to help them plan. 
The family sat down and mapped out a few different scenarios. What happens if they deport one of us? What does the other one do? We've talked to our daughters, and they know the plan. I think it was my mom who uh, called my sister and I to the living room. We talked to Whitney, Cuca's older daughter, at their apartment. She said, okay, we need to talk. We had to figure out and agree on if somebody gets deported, who will go back with them and who will stay. In their first conversation, they all decided that if one of them was sent to Mexico, all four of them would go. But then later, Whitney's mom, Kuka, started thinking, you know, maybe Whitney should stay in America and finish college. So that became the plan. The other three would go. And then Kuka realized, oh, to set up life in Mexico, they're going to need a lot of money. So she began to wonder, if she were deported, was it a good idea for Whitney's dad to leave with her and give up his American income? So I said, no, it can't be that if I go back, he goes back. He has to wait and get some money together to at least get a bed and light and gas, basic things that we need to live. And in the situation where he's deported, geez, it gets really complicated, you know? For me personally, it was devastating to have to have that that kind of conversation and like process the fact that we were having that conversation. Seems like it was even harder for her little sister, Naomi, the 11-year-old, who kind of zones out in video games or just cracks jokes whenever the family starts talking about this stuff. The reality of having to relocate to Mexico, a country she's never set foot in. Oh boy, was I freaked out because I thought, like, um, I thought that I couldn't take anything over there. Yeah, so at first I was worried about, like, not having any snacks, not having any computers, not having any Legos, not having anything fun. So, yeah. Some of those Legos they don't even make anymore. You know, like the SpongeBob Legos. I'm a big fan of SpongeBob. So, yeah. That was the part that I was mostly freaked out about. Yeah. And school. I mean, would I, would I continue? Yeah. She said actually she could barely remember anything anyone said in these family discussions about their plans. Couldn't remember how she felt. When her mom prodded her a little, she said, And, well, yeah, okay, so my dad was serious, and, like, I don't know, my mom also, yeah. I think I'm starting to remember now. Some of us actually were crying, yeah. Yeah, and I'm just thinking about stuff like, is there going to be a snow day? And I'm like, praying God, please be a snow day. She means like the next day in Chicago. That's what she was thinking about during this tense family sit down. And this is pretty much how she talked about her feelings with us until Lily started asking about this one conversation that Naomi had with her mom, just the two of them, talking about being deported. Then I heard about the plans, which I kind of feel not worried. What would happen to my sister? Yeah. So that's something that I um, worry about. You worry about what would happen to your sister. What do you worry about? Um, like, she, she, like, I can't, I won't see her for like two years or more. We're, we're a family. We're a family. I want to stay together and not be separated. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's the part that right now I'm worrying most about. 
yeah. For now, the family's preparing, just in case. Getting the last few official documents in hand. Getting Naomi Mexican citizenship, in addition to her American citizenship, so it'll be easier to move her to Mexico if needs be. And they have this system that when one of them leaves the house, when they get to where they're going, they call to say that they safely got there. Cuckoo worries most about her husband, who goes to work in the suburbs. When the phone rings and I see his number, I'm like, oh, okay, he arrived. For all these things the family's doing to prepare for the worst, the truth is, it's still not clear how much danger they're actually in. It's still not clear how aggressively the Trump administration is going to be deporting people under the new rules that they've just adopted. So much is still in the air. And one place you can see that is this hotline that a church set up in West Chicago, the Faith, Life, and Hope Mission. Erica Velasquez is one of the volunteers who answers calls on her personal cell phone, by the way. She told me she's getting 60 to 70 a day and that it's driving her husband nuts. Some questions that she gets are totally random. One green card holder, who's in the process of becoming a citizen, wondered if having a tattoo could endanger his chances. And they ask me, Erica, I heard that now if you have a tattoo, they're going to interpret that as if I'm a criminal or like I'm in some kind of gang. So am I not going to be able to work it out? It surprised me. I didn't know what to say. People call asking about food stamps. New guidelines say you can get prioritized for deportation if you receive government benefits you shouldn't have. So if the parents are not citizens but the kids are citizens, can they argue that the kids are the ones getting the food stamps? Are they okay? The guidelines also say you can get prioritized for removal if you committed or just been charged with any crimes at all. And people call asking about what they thought of as minor offenses on their records, traffic tickets, DUIs. Will they now be prioritized for removal? I talked to one of the lawyers who spoke at the consulate, Salvador Cicero. He's a green card holder himself. He says one of the new guidelines he finds most chilling is the one that says to prioritize for removal anyone who, quote, in the judgment of an immigration officer, poses a risk to public safety or national security. Yeah, that is the scariest thing, I think. If in his discretion you pose a threat to public safety, what does that mean? Does that mean that if I am loitering, you're a threat to public safety, you're out? I mean, how, how wide is that a power? It's incredibly vague. And that is a problem. I mean, as it reads, it hasn't been further defined as of yet. So for the moment, green card holders, undocumented immigrants, nobody knows what to expect. And that uncertainty has led to a lot of fear. Kuka's husband, Ignacio, told me he's become paranoid. He'll see a truck with weird lights on the highway and worry that it's immigration. Well, today on our show, we have a program about rules and what happens when they're vague and randomly enforced. And you can't predict what's going to happen to you. Even if you're in a tropical paradise, that's the first half of the show. We're going to Hawaii. In the second half of the show, we have the rules in a very different sort of paradise. Talking about the New Jersey suburbs. From WBEC Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. Taekwon, that's just how I rule. I remember once visiting Hawaii and hearing about this island that as outsiders and as white people, we were not allowed to go to. It was just for Native Hawaiians, I remember being told. People sometimes call it the Forbidden Island 
Its real name is Niihau. And even if you're from Hawaii, apparently, it's a mysterious place. I pretty much knew nothing about Niihau. Zadia White, public radio reporter who grew up on Maui. In school, we learned a lot about all of the other islands, a little bit about that history, but for Niihau, they, they pretty much told us nothing. The little I knew about it was that it's, it's a piece of the original Hawaii. That's what everyone kind of thought about it, right? Like, on Niihau, people live as they did before Hawaii was colonized. It's, it's what it's supposed to be like. So, for instance, it predates the kind of Hawaiian music that you're hearing right now. You can see Niihau on a map to the west of Kauai, about 70 square miles or so. A lot smaller than Maui or Oahu or any place in Hawaii you normally hear about. Growing up, Adia didn't know what to picture it was like there. But she figured... You know, like like an original, a traditional Hawaiian village where it was governed by Native Hawaiians. They decided who could come, who could go. They decided who they wanted to invite and how they wanted to live. But about a year ago, she started looking into what happens on Niihau. And she learned that it is not that at all. It's basically a family of white people who own everything and run the place even though they don't live there. They set the rules, which seem to be unwritten, And some of the rules are administered in an unpredictable, sort of ad hoc way. One of our producers, Sean Cole, joined Adia in reporting the story this fall. You can't just go to Niihau and interview the islanders, and even the ones who leave Niihau and move to the other Hawaiian islands, they're pretty tight-lipped about life there. But Sean and Adia found a handful of people who were willing to talk to them. Here's what they learned. How Niihau got this way isn't a secret at all. Basically, back in the 1860s, when Hawaii was still a kingdom, the king sold the island to a white family for $10,000 in gold. They wanted to ranch cattle on it, and there was a community of about 1,000 native Hawaiians living there. According to the family, before the ink was even dry on the contract handing over the land, the king looked at them and said, the day may come when Hawaiians are not as strong in Hawaii as they are now. And if that day comes, please do what you can to help them. That day, of course, did come, and the family has tried to keep their promise to the king all these years. And the way they interpreted helping the villagers was, let's preserve this place to be just as it was in 1864 when we bought it. So this is the last place on earth where the language everybody uses every day is Hawaiian. They learn it as their first language, and they speak an older form of Hawaiian than you hear anywhere else. Also, the lifestyle there is pretty Spartan. Um, No running water... No electricity, no no bathrooms. So it's outhouses that we use, yeah. This is Tuti Sanborn. She lives on Oahu now, but her family's from Niihau, and she lived there every summer as a kid. She's the kind of person who uses phrases like feel the aloha in earnest and gets away with it. So as the evening approached, we'd, we'd gather all of the lanterns and refuel them, yeah, with um, kerosene. I remember my mom's kitchen, Have there was a kerosene stove in it. I remember doing that kind of stuff. I remember going to the wells to gather water. Tootie and the other Niihounds we talked to all described the same thing. No paved roads, no streetlights, one-floor houses with tin roofs, big yards, horses in the yards, peacocks and wild turkeys and pigs roaming around, and they fish and hunt for their food a lot of the time. There's a church in the center of the village, and a kind of meeting hall. A little school, but no stores or anything. In fact, no one uses money on Niihau. There's no formal medical care there either. No law enforcement. 
The pastor of the church settles any disputes that flare up. These days, they have solar panels to charge their phones and iPads and a few trucks to drive around the island. But mostly, it's Hawaii circa 1864. Christian missionaries had been in the islands for decades by then. People told us that church attendance on Niihau is mandatory. Also, the family that owns Niihau, the Robinsons, are famous abstainers from all vice. And they've always required the residents of the island to live by those same values. No alcohol is allowed. No smoking. No drugs, no guns. And if you're caught, say, drinking or doing drugs, you can get kicked off the island. Which feels like a weird phrase to be saying out loud about real people. The Robinsons insist that they're simply protecting the villagers from all the awfulness of the modern world, just like they promised the king. The oldest members of the Robinson family are Keith and Bruce, their brothers, both in their 70s. There was a documentary made about Keith in 2005 called Robinson Crusader, about his work to preserve endangered plant species. And he talks a little about Niihau in it. I haven't seen any uh, aircraft crashing into skyscrapers here. I haven't seen any plagues of AIDS here. As far as I know, there isn't one case of AIDS on the island. Uh, I, we have no drug problem. Uh, we, if, if there is any kind of a social problem here, the elders of the village sort it out by themselves, and if they can't handle it, they come to us. If this sounds like an oddly colonialist sort of project to have lasted into the 21st century with white people setting the rules for Native Hawaiians, I want to be clear. The villagers on Niihau are American citizens. They just happen to live on an island that's privately owned by this family. They can move away anytime they want, but if they want to stay, they have to respect the rules, that this is a regulated paradise. And people do want to stay. Everyone we spoke to who lived there, including people who have plenty of criticisms of the Robinsons, they all said they loved it. Did everybody really go to church on Sunday, or did they try yes, to sneak out of it? the only, only social event uh, of the island, <laughs> besides parties, if they had parties. But otherwise, what were the parties like? Were they drinking juice? Uh, the parties were, you know, the parties were two weeks long. What? Two weeks every day. And on Sunday, and on Sunday, it's an island full of aloha. So they'd have the parties for two weeks. So when they ordered food, they ordered a lot. They have canned goods and other foods shipped over from Kauai to supplement the fishing and hunting. Or they go to Kauai and shop themselves sometimes. A couple of the rules on the Ihau seem a little more arbitrary than the others. Pulani Kahokaloa says his dad was kicked off the island when Pulani was 13, and Pulani left with him. That was 30 years ago. He could go back today, except for one thing. I have to cut my hair and shave. What? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of ridiculous. No beards are allowed on the island, and no long hair on the guys. Pulani's a real ponytail backwards ball cap kind of dude. And his sons have long hair too. They'd all have to get haircuts if they want to go back. I don't know what the reason. Because uh, I had uncles that showed me older pictures when they were young. They had like Elvis hair, like like long hair, you know. But, it's a new rule. Yeah, it's a new rule. It's a silly rule. Pulani has a really hard time with the haircut thing. He kept coming back to it during our interview. We'd be talking about the rules in general and his distaste for them, and then he'd say something like this. Especially the silly one of cutting hair. That one, that, that's the main one that blows everybody's mind away when they ask me, oh, how come you cannot go back in the My wife said, oh, he got to cut his hair. Said, what? So no way. Hawaiians had long hair back in the days. We look like caveman's. I said, yeah, well, not today. Got to cut the hair. 
It really bothers you. <laughs> it does. You know. And there's a rule that Tutti Sanborn violated. It's a little more nuanced. So I have to have to worry the money here. She wanted to document what life was like on the island. She was worried those traditions would be forgotten. So she writes about the island sometimes, and she did a series of TV interviews with her family, asking them what they remembered. Just innocuous stuff. I did one on my dad, with my dad, on saddle making. I did one with my sister. I did a few. In a way, she was doing the same thing the Robinsons were doing trying to preserve native Hawaiian-ness, capture it in video amber. But the Robinsons didn't see it that way. And now, she's not allowed back on the island. To them, the interviews, the articles, all of that violated what you could call the first rule of Niihau. You do not talk about Niihau. This punishment, barring some people from the island, even people who left by choice, this was the thing the Niihauans we talked to were the most bitter about. Tutti's sister Doreen, everybody calls her Auntie Deer, has been barred from moving back to Niihau because she spent too much time away. She lived on the island until she was about 30, but then she moved to Kauai to take care of her mom, who had a stroke. After her parents died, she wanted to move back. But she couldn't, she says, because of Leana. Leana is the matriarch of the Robinson family, and she's the one you have to call when you want to go back to visit or to live full-time again. She said, when we come here, and stay here like one year or two years, we are considered outsiders. So that hurt me. In my heart, it was like, I was, it was broken. My heart broke. Because I said, how can she say that? Because I was raised there. When I was born, I was raised there. She said um, that we belong here, not there. I broke down, like cried, and said, oh, how can that be? Because it's like the island is calling me to go back there. And it doesn't help that you can see Niihau from Kauai. Driving up and down the road that runs along the ocean, Niihau is a clear mountainous hump just to hop across the water. It feels so reachable, like you could just take a boat there yourself. But of course you can't. It's private property. The younger of the two Robinson brothers, Bruce Robinson, is considered the main boss of the island. But as he's gotten older, the day-to-day management of Niihau has shifted to his wife, Leana, which was really exciting for the villagers, because Leana's one of them. She's native Hawaiian. She was actually the daughter of the pastor on Niihau, 30 years or so younger than Bruce. Tuti Sanborn remembers when they got together. Honestly, I thought, oh, great, now we have our own. That's, you know, in a place where, you know, she can make changes and make good changes, yeah, and don't have to rule over our people so strictly, yeah. But no. She's just like the Robinsons. She treats the people just like the the Robinsons have treated the people. Which is? Strict. I thought it would change where she would allow me to go, yeah. It didn't change at all. Got worse, yeah. Tutti says she's asked Leana a bunch of times if she can go back to the island. The way it works is that the Robinsons have a military surplus barge, like in Saving Private Ryan, the kind where the front drops down. They ferry livestock with it, and fuel and other supplies. And people who want to go back to Niihau can ride over on the barge. 
Only 20 or 25 people can fit on board. The trip takes a couple of hours. And they run pretty frequently, maybe three times a week. You just have to call and schedule it in advance. And I remember calling on one occasion, and she just said, Oh, sorry, not, not at the moment. We cannot accommodate you right now. The boat is, or their usual comment or response is, the barge is full. <laughs> like of other people going? Right. And things. Sorry, the barge is full. There's no room. There's no space. You're laughing because that doesn't seem true. No. Yeah. Because I know who goes. We all talk to each other, let each other know. <laughs> how many times did you ask and how often? So like three, four years consecutively I tried and was denied. So I just kind of stopped after after that. Actually, no, I tried going through someone else. I would ask someone that's influential in my family. Can you go ask Liana that I want to go to Nihau? Uh, still got denied. And I'm like, whatever, you're still my cousin. Can I change that? This is something we hadn't thought of, but it was so obvious once people pointed it out. On an island this small, everyone's going to be related in some way. So this dynamic between Tutti and Liana, it's a family dynamic. They're cousins. In fact, people use the word ohana, family, to describe the whole community of Ni'ihauans, both on the island and off. But while Tutti is technically a member of the ohana, Liana doesn't really consider her that anymore. And there's no court of appeals, no due process. Liana and the Robinson brothers have the last word. Contrary to what Auntie Deer told us, there are people who move away from Ni'ihau to Kauai for a couple years who are allowed to return. But those folks are more tied into Leana's inner circle. And as a result, they're really hard to interview. This is an important point. The people that you're hearing from in this story, they're a pretty self-selecting group. They talk to us because they either felt like they had nothing to lose or because they have some sort of issue with how the island is run, if not with Leana herself. With all this policing of who can come and go on the island, and all the people banned from moving back, we wondered how many folks are left living on Ni'ihau. Again, the whole point of this project is to try to preserve a place for Native Hawaiians, their culture, and their language. But even this most basic fact, the population of Ni'ihau, was hard to pin down. Right before the Robinsons' ancestors bought the island in 1864, again, there were about a thousand people living on Ni'ihau. That's according to the census. And they were worried what was going to happen when the Howleys, the white people, took over. In fact, the villagers wrote two letters to the Hawaiian government begging to buy or lease the island themselves. But nobody listened to them. Over the next four years, 700 people moved off of Ni'ihau. The latest census, from 2010, says there are 170 residents on Ni'ihau. But Pulani Kahokuloa told us the community has really dwindled since then. Um, let's just say right now there's... One, two, three. At least five families are left on Nihau. So how many people is that? Um, about 21, 25 people. Wait, what? There's only 25 people left on Nihau? Yeah. Just From. about, but you can try to confirm it with Leanna first, you know. She might give you another different number. I should say, by this point, we had already started trying to get a hold of Leanna. I left a voicemail at her office, and then a retired reporter I got in touch with on Kauai told her we were working on this story. So I left a second voicemail. In any case, 
We've asked several people how many villagers are left on the island of Niihau, and the range that keeps coming up is between 35 and 50. Even a grocery store clerk on Kauai, who grew up on Niihau, said there's almost nobody left there. He wouldn't go on tape, but when we told him what we were doing, he said, does this mean people will get to go back now? Is that what the story's about? Glass, this American Life. Leave a message. Hi, Ira. It's Sean. Um, contrary to popular belief, there is cell service on Niihau. I am on Niihau. I'm standing on the just the wildest beach that I've ever been to. Like, act like by and by wild, I mean kind of like wilderness. It's like a it's like this weird, untamed beach with these lava outcroppings in it, and the water is is this unreal, multicolored organism. It's just it's just fantastic here. Um, so I thought I should call you from Niihau, and uh, and I'll see you soon. All right, bye. Adia! There is one way outsiders can set foot on the Eihau. Oh, animal poop. Just like everywhere. Back in the 80s, the Robinsons bought a helicopter, partly so they could respond to medical emergencies on the island. And to offset the cost of it, they started offering tourist trips to the Eihau. Not to the village. You still really can't get anywhere near the village. But anyone with $440, who's not afraid to ride in a helicopter can take this half-day tour where you soar above the island and then land for a few hours on its northernmost beach. It's a beach the villagers use themselves, though they stay away when tourists are around. So there were no people, not a single building in sight except this one weather-beaten pavilion with a storage hut across from it. So, miles of empty beach, and then behind us, this baking landscape that is not beach, but red dirt, also vast, dotted with scrubby brush and dry grasses. It was like a piece of a foreign planet had fallen into the middle of the Pacific. Addie and I agreed. It was unlike any place either of us had ever seen. It was kind of like we had discovered an island. On the flight over, the helicopter pilot acted as a tour guide, pointing out sights, talking about the wildlife on the island. He told us that Niihau had been deemed, by some, the quietest place in the world. Although, as he pointed out, it's not clear how they measure those things. I wouldn't call this the quietest place in the world at all. It's not quiet. It's really loud here. It's very loud here. We spent four hours roaming around on the beach, which didn't give us any more understanding of what life was like there. So here's some other stuff we learned. First and foremost, it's been hard for the Robinsons to keep this place going. The ranching business is mostly unprofitable. They've tried other sources of revenue, making honey, manufacturing charcoal, neither of which worked, They also run hunting safaris where people pay to shoot the wild pigs and other game. And there are the helicopter tours, of course. But really, the most stable source of income on the island thus far is one that won't sound traditional nor Hawaiian. Military contracts. There's a Navy radar facility on the island. And a recent contract provides for 19 full-time equivalent jobs. Also, various Navy exercises have been carried out on the island. 
The Robinsons seemed to be proud of their contracts with the military. Keith, the older brother, talked with the villagers about working with the Navy at a public hearing that was held on Niihau back in 2015. Without that money, frankly, your community, your jobs would not have survived. It's just that simple. Uh, for the time being, the U.S. Navy is your uh, source of income that keeps all of you going here and which keeps us going and allows us to pay the taxes on this place. The villagers are paid to maintain the radar facility, and the ranch for that matter. They live rent-free. We heard that some receive food stamps and other public benefits. As to the question of whether military contracts are compatible with the mission of preserving Native Hawaiianness, Keith has said, It's a lot more compatible than tourism. The military is stealth, he said, and it doesn't leave litter behind. We tried a couple more times to reach Leana to get her take on everything we'd heard. And it started to seem like a dead end. And then, on our last full day on Kauai, a little before 9 a.m., my phone rang. It was her. I know what your name is, she said, but I don't know what your mission is. I explained as best I could, but I was nervous. In our minds, Leana had been built up into this towering intimidator. But finally, she agreed to speak with us. Meet me at the helicopter office in an hour, she said. Somehow, both of our voices became very high when we got there. Hi. Good morning. Aloha. How are you? Leana is decidedly not a towering intimidator. She's maybe five foot four, with long dark hair, plaid shirt, jeans and boots. She was very gracious and pleasant with us. Can you join us over here? Sure. Uh... But as soon as she saw the microphone, her eyes widened. She said she didn't want to go on tape. So you're not going to hear her voice in the story. She said she tries to stay out of the media if possible. She doesn't feel like she should be speaking for the whole community. And she clearly doesn't have a lot of time for sit-downs like this. During our visit, her cell phone wouldn't stop ringing and the office phone too. She's the point person for everyone now, she said. But she said she'd try to answer any questions we had. And then she said, you can phrase the answers however you want. We told Leana who else we'd talk to, and as soon as we said the first name, Tootie Sanborn, she did a kind of epic eye roll. Well, Tootie, I mean, she said, but she stopped herself. Okay, okay, she said. Who else? Pulani Kahokuloa, I said, and she got tense again. You're all the way over here, she said, gesturing away from herself. She said her story was clearly one-sided. And that's why we came to you, I said. And so we got into it. Leana said there is a limit to how long you can be away, out of the community, and still be let back on Niihau. She can only accommodate so many people, and she has to make choices. She said, I don't know what Tuti's purpose is for going home. She's crossed a lot of lines. What lines, I said. She said, people of the village don't want her being the voice of the people, meaning all the ways that Tuti documents life on Niihau for the rest of the world. And then she gave us this one example that really stuck in her craw, that Tuti hadn't mentioned. She said Tuti had worked as a consultant on an episode of Hawaii Five-0, the new rebooted version that's on TV now. In the episode, a college professor is murdered after sneaking onto Niihau to steal a rare plant. There are aerial shots of Niihau in the show, although the scenes in the actual village look like they were filmed somewhere else. Tuti herself plays a village elder. <laughs> Leona said, it's not her right to be their point person on Niihau, especially a big production like that. They should have come to us. I've worked with Jurassic Park, she said. Which is true. There's a scene in one of the movies of the Robinsons' helicopter flying over one of their properties on Kauai. 
And so Leona felt cut out of this one. Why is this any different, she said. Why are we killing each other? We did a little fact-checking on this. For what it's worth, Tuti was not the point person on Niihau for Hawaii Five-O. We asked Leona about the haircut rule, Pulani's big favorite. She said they don't like tattoos on the island either. Or piercings. Or hair dye. All of that stuff has gotten really out of hand, she says. And she says church attendance on Niihau is not mandatory. Pulani's complaining caught her off guard, and she refuted him on pretty much every point. She gave a much higher number for how many people are on the island than Pulani did. Not 25, more like 125. And she told us, sometimes it's the community who doesn't want someone to come back on the island, in which case they'll tell her and she'll deliver the news. She's fine with being the bad guy, she says. You interviewed a whole different group than my group, she said. We may be of the same blood, but they're not with me. I have to listen to the community. If you take a hike, you take a hike. That's all there is to it. They've given their heart elsewhere. So why should I waste my energy for these people that have come to the table to say blah, 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 blah over these people that have dedicated their life to going back to the family? It's a really, you can put it however you want to. Also, we finally got to talk with someone who is part of that close-knit group of Niihauans Leona talked about. Pulani's sister, actually, who also didn't want her voice on the radio. She said, We like Niihau the way it is, and I believe the Robinsons are keeping it that way. They're really good people. Honestly, if you were the owner of an island, but you live on Kauai, would you pay for the fuel for the barge to send people over for free and not charge for each box that they ship to Niihau? That means a lot to us. They really do take care of the people. I can't believe you guys came all the way from the mainland. Thinking about all the rules on Niihau and the way they're implemented, at some point I started to wonder, should they even keep it going? When we were talking to Pulani, who clearly has a lot of problems with the way the island is run, we asked him about that. And he told us this story, about his brother Ioane. Ioane's married and has kids. He lived on Niihau all his life, until he decided to try to make a go of it in modern life. So he moved on to Kauai with his family and got a job driving semi-trucks, delivery trucks. But he used to complain to Pulani about how expensive everything was. And then one day, he just disappeared. And I got a call from his boss asking me, he was like, oh, where's your brother? He's like, I don't know, you should tell me he worked for you. And I was like, oh, he didn't show up to work for three days now. No call, no show, no nothing. So Pulani calls one of their sisters, who also lives on Kauai. And he says, do you know where our brother is? She, she started to laugh. Say, he went back. Say, what do you mean he went back? Yeah, he went back to Niau. He, took, he picked up his family and went back to Niau. When I finally talked to him, it was, he said he was just over it. To him was harder to pay taxes, buy a car, keep up with the registration, rent a house, pay for electricity, the water, gas and not getting nowhere living from paycheck to paycheck he said he was more happy back home living off the land living each day for that day because next day it's a new day so he he had a harder time abiding by the rules of modern life than to the rules of 
of the island of, of Robinson. Yeah. Yeah, he said he can put up with that. And Pulani later told us his brother Yoane, he's back living on Kauai now. He broke one of the rules. Pulani didn't say what it was, but Yoane was asked to leave Niihau. And he hopes that one day he'll be allowed back. John Cole and Adia White. Coming up, the head of one of the biggest financial institutions on the planet, a homeless guy, and one of our own producers all get called in on the same day in front of the same judge and the same set of rules. Who comes out on top? That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This American Life from Ira Glass. Today's program, Vague and Confused. Stories of what happens when the rules are hazy and nobody can tell how they're going to be applied and what that does to people. We have arrived at Act 2 of our program, Act 2, a Dave in court. A little while ago, one of our producers, David Kestenbaum, broke one of the rules that we in our country have decided all to abide by. He made a left-hand turn by a sign that says, no left-hand turns. As a result, he ended up spending the day in the courtroom of this one judge, this judge who applied the rules with a fastidious consistency that's sometimes lacking on privately owned Hawaiian islands. We thought it might be nice to end our show today by seeing what that's like exactly. Here's David. If the Supreme Court is the highest court in the land, this is basically the lowest. It's a municipal court. This one is for two towns in New Jersey. Still, the courtroom is an intimidating place. Wood paneling, wood seats, a giant official seal on the wall. In front of that, the judge's bench which is raised, like this physical reminder of who is in charge. There are a couple dozen of us here to have our cases heard. All rise for the Honorable Clarence Barry Austin. Good morning, gentlemen. Judge Clarence Barry Austin walks in, black robe. And if you're hoping to be home in an hour, it's not going to happen. Here's how he starts. Now, the information I'm about to communicate to you will take a few minutes to do so, perhaps more than a few minutes. I know the word few can mean more than three. In this case, it means 22, which is longer, by the way, than this entire story will be. He gives this long list of rules and information and more rules. I have to accept your guilty plea. I have to evaluate that plea to determine that it is an acceptable plea according to... The judge wants people to know all this stuff for their own protection. But he has another reason as well. There is this much grander mission that he's on, though it doesn't come up until minute 20. And it's easy to miss. It is important to the court that you leave here fully understanding our procedures, our protocols, and the circumstances surrounding your particular case. Um, Whether you are happy with the result is less important to you. Really, frankly, it's less important to me. He wants people to leave the court understanding how our legal system works. I talked to Barry Austin about this. Months later, we sat down to do an interview. He says it's part of their training for municipal courts. Because for some people coming in, their little traffic case could be their only contact with the legal system, ever. The only time they're in an actual court, having their case heard, with all that wood paneling around them. Uh, That's one of the things that we talk about, the fact that it's important that they have a good experience and a fair and an impartial experience here because this is where people will determine what they think of the judiciary as a whole. Like everything, like up to the Supreme Court, like all the cases they read about in the newspaper. Absolutely. They get a sense that judiciary functions in a, in a fair and impartial way, and a compassionate way. 
What makes this mission hard is that I and all the people around me here are on a mission of our own. And it is not the same mission. From what I can tell from our chit-chat on the way in, a bunch of us are here because we are sure we should not have gotten the ticket. I fall into this category. We want the judge to waive the ticket, or at least reduce the fine, or something. Place your left hand on the Bible, right hand raised. Case in point, and by that I mean case in point, this is a guy who will call Jeff. Jeff is upset about his ticket. He'd parked his car on the street overnight, which is not allowed. There are signs for it all over town. But he is pleading not guilty. So they have this little mini trial. He doesn't have a lawyer or anything. It's just him. This procedure is a little different than you may be accustomed to. I know you're I've been coming here for about 14 years now. You've been coming here for about 14 years. Grew up in this town. Okay. You've been coming to court for 14 years? Well, you know, with school. I went to school at Seattle. Right. Well, I just wanted to... I think Jeff is just trying to establish that he's a local, the kind of person who deserves a break. He launches into his defense, which is that he lives basically right on the border between two towns. In one town, it's illegal to park on the street overnight. But in the other town, it's legal. He says there are no signs showing where the border is. Though when he lays all this out, the whole thing gets a little garbled. Because I saw this a few times when people go to court. They sometimes try to use legal terms like they've seen on Law and Order or something. This one, and that's why I came here, Your Honor, to actually show evidence that there's no actual proof Do you beyond want- a reasonable doubt for an individual that goes in there, like myself, to be living there, to know that that particular side of the street where the border is between two towns, to know exactly if it was parking in South Orange or in North. As I indicated in my opening statement, parking tickets are a little different. Judge Barry Austin is very patient with him. He told me people often come in just wanting to be heard. So he listens. But also, this is the mission, remember. He wants the guy to know how our system works, how the law works. Let me just inform you that motor vehicle rules of the road don't require intent. Criminal laws require you to intend to violate them. Motor vehicle laws don't require intent. So if you park illegally, even if you don't intend to park illegally, if you are in fact parked illegally, that's a violation. Jeff plows ahead anyway. He enters 11 photos into evidence. He runs through them one by one. Photos of the street signs and the lack of street signs. Close-ups of street signs. A photo of a fire hydrant for some reason. Of a car parked in the same spot he was parked in on a different night. That car didn't get a ticket. The whole thing takes about 15 minutes. And then the judge issues his ruling. Your defense really is not an, uh, an approved defense. I'm satisfied that all the necessary proofs uh, are in place for me to, to uh, and supports a finding of guilty of this particular offense. The fine for the offender is $60. Jeff went uh, off to pay his I fine, pretty clearly feeling like justice had not been done here. How do you think he felt at the end of that? I'm sure he felt frustrated. Didn't you have some discretion? I mean, this guy, like, he's walking in there super frustrated. Like, he's lived here his whole life. Like, there are no signs there. Could you have given him a break? I could have suspended this fine, yes. Oh, you could have? I could have. Why didn't you? Because he violated law. I mean, people go through stop signs and say, I didn't see the stop sign. What would make his situation different from anybody else who said, I judge, I didn't know? Barry Austin was born in Guyana. Neither of his parents went to college, but he told me he wanted to work with the law as long as he can remember. He liked arguing things, sorting through the logic of things. 
He has faith in the idea of laws, that rules, words on a page, can be clearly applied to the real world. And yet, even here with these little cases, you see how hard that can be. Like with this one man, he'd gotten a ticket, I think, for being too far into the intersection when he stopped for a red light. His English isn't so good. Yeah, yes, something un- understand. Can, oh. yeah. <laughs> now, is it a hearing problem or is it a language problem? Do you understand English? No, 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 no problem with hearing. No, it's okay. You can hear okay. You hear everything I'm saying. It's okay. No. Do you understand everything I'm saying? Yes, I understand something. Yes. Okay. What language do you speak, sir? Uh, Ukrainian, Russian, Polish. The guy just wants to plead guilty. But the judge, admirably, wants to make sure the man clearly understands what's happening. So he tries to get an interpreter. The courts are set up to do this, though the mechanism seems a little low-tech. The judge calls up an interpreter service, basically on a speakerphone in the court. Welcome to Language Line Solution. For Spanish, press 1. For other, press 2. The judge tells them he needs a Polish interpreter, and after a bit, a woman comes on who speaks Polish. The judge has to swear her in. Do you solemnly swear? This all takes time. Everyone in court just has to wait. Then the judge starts over with the man. The woman on the phone translates for the judge. It is not Polish language. What, 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 didn't you say that you, you would prefer to speak in Polish? Ukrainian, Ukrainian, Russian, no problem. Uh, I, th- I, thought, I thought you said Poland, no, Polish, no problem. Didn't you say that? The judge has to do the whole thing again. Find a Ukrainian interpreter. This went on for over a half an hour. Even with the interpreter, the judge isn't convinced the man totally understands. So he schedules a trial for another day. All this to try to resolve a minor traffic violation. I found it grueling. And also, impressive. Most of the cases didn't take that long. The judge cranked through 27 different defendants in a little over five hours. There was a guy who had been caught with a small amount of marijuana. And weirdly, a case against the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, the largest bank in America. I thought maybe he'd blown a stop sign or something, but it was about a property that hadn't been kept up. And it turned out neither he nor the bank had any connection to the building. So it got dismissed. And then there was one woman who'd been in a minor accident. She testified that the other car had, quote, appeared out of nowhere, which I'm pretty sure violates the law of physics. Some people did seem okay with how things went. One man, when his case was over, told the judge to have a blessed day. Another man who had pulled into a handicapped spot apologized. The most fascinating case of the day, though, the one where you saw just how hard it could sometimes be to apply the law, was this one. Just uh, speak up, say who you are, name and address. The guy says his name. Then, for address... I don't have an address. By that, are you asserting that you're homeless? Yes, sir. The man's wearing a long sleeve button-up shirt that is too big and untucked. He's standing with his legs really far apart, as if maybe he'd worked out that that was the most stable way to stand, to keep from falling over. Judge Barry Austin goes through the papers. He sees that the man is in for basically drinking in public. It's an open container violation. The ticket was issued years ago and never paid. Which is going back to... 2013. Yeah, it took me a little while to get here. Sorry. 
I don't know how to take that, but I hope you don't mean that to be funny. The prosecutor has recommended that the whole thing be dismissed. But Barry Austin is not on board. He looks down at the ticket. The court had tried to get the man to appear many times. I mean, there are multiple times. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven that I can quickly count. Uh, The court is expending an enormous amount of time, effort, and expense in just trying to get him into court. I'm willing to dismiss the original ticket, he says. But shouldn't there be some penalty for failing to appear in court so many times? At this point, the homeless man, unwisely, speaks up. I've been homeless for approximately eight years, sir. Uh, Okay, but at the same time, you you did get the ticket, did you not? I got the ticket and I lost it. Threw it away. I don't know what I did with it. Yeah. <laughs> you see, <laughs> he lost it or he threw it away. You know, it's just a total disregard for the process. That, that's what's bothering me, okay? I mean, being homeless, you know, it doesn't prevent you from at least abiding by the process of, of the court. Of course, the judge is all about applying the process of the court. A woman steps up to testify on the homeless man's behalf. She says she knows him because he comes to her food pantry. He volunteers there, too. She says he comes in three days a week, four hours a day. It's a lot of work. And he needs medical care. He has seizures. I've witnessed them. He's going to the hospital. I take him home from the hospital. She says she's been trying to help get him on Medicaid. But someone told her he can't be on Medicaid because of this outstanding ticket. I later learned that's probably not correct. But that's why she brought him in. So we're trying to go through all the processes and it's taking a long time. But So if, if, if I'm understanding you correct, it wasn't even at his initiative that he's here today. It's at your initiative. Because he forgot all about it. I'm sure he did. And he shouldn't have. This is where the mission gets tough. Judge Barry Austin goes back and forth about what to do, just thinking aloud. I don't see how I can let this go, he says. He can't just not show up for court so many times and there not be any consequence. On the other hand, he recognizes the guy will have a hard time paying a penalty. There will probably be additional cost to the court to try to collect it. But in the end, he decides to issue a $50 fine for failing to appear. And then, almost as an afterthought, he asks this. Does he get paid at all for his work at the... At, We're all volunteers. We'll pay court costs, whatever it is, sir. The program will take care of that for him? We'll take care of it, absolutely, because he needs medical help. All right, okay. Um... Barry Austin was just trying to apply the law, the law that he believes in. And yet, he was in a bind. He decided to issue this fine to punish a guy for not showing up in court. But now the guy wasn't even going to end up paying the fine, because now it's going to come out of the budget of a food pantry. What to do? When I interviewed Barry Austin about this day in court, it was a couple months after the fact. He was curious how it came out, too. How did it turn out? Do you recall? What do you think he did? What would I have done? What? I, I don't want to venture a guess. Tell me how it worked out. <laughs> yeah, I'll play it for you. All right, you know what? I, since uh, I don't want to impose that cost upon the program. Okay, I don't want to impose that. Uh, you know, I'm going to suspend it. He lets it go. No penalty. 
Barry Austin told me this is one thing that thwarts him occasionally, human kindness. The usual way it happens is that someone, an adult, will be assessed a fine, and then the person will look to the back of the courtroom, and an older parent or grandparent will come forward to pay it. Why are you paying? It's his, I mean, this is, he's not a child. He's a grown person. Uh, why are you, I mean, I can't tell you not to pay. And I won't tell you not to pay, but it just irritates me. I always tell, I tell my kids, I'm, I will never let you fall and crash and burn. I will always be that last resort that you have to. But you have to learn lessons from the things that you do. And the rules are the rules. The rules are the rules. I have just one more case for you. Stay versus David Kestenbaum. That's me. Before I play the tape, which is excruciating for me to listen to now, remember, I was one of the people who was convinced they had been wronged. I'd made the left turn, sure, into a parking space, but I had no idea it was illegal. There is a sign, but honestly, you can't see it until after you've already made the turn. And given that, the penalty just seemed unfair. $85 plus three points on your license. After it happened, I would pass by that spot every day on my way to work, and every day I would be filled with outrage that I'd gotten a ticket. I'd been compulsively running through what I would say in court in my head for weeks. So that day I dressed up, I wore a tie, I had my manila envelope with photos in it, and data. I'd measured the distance from where I'd made the turn to where the sign is. I was nervous to be there in court, but I also felt like, I'm a rule follower. If there's a sign that says no left turns, I don't make a left turn. So I felt like, I'm not against these people, the judge and the prosecutor. There'd just been some sort of mistake. We were going to sort it out. I see now how stupid that was. When I arrived in court, I'd waited in line to see the prosecutor, who'd looked up my driving record, which was clean, and he'd offered me a plea bargain. I would plead guilty to a lesser charge, obstructing the flow of traffic, which did not come with any points, and he said I could explain to the judge about the signs. Maybe he would reduce the fine. That seemed great. It seemed like the way the system was supposed to work. I knew it. These were my people. We all want the same thing. Here's what happened when I got before Judge Barry Austin. Good afternoon, sir. Your name, your address, please. David Kestenbaum. It started according to plan. Are you also charged with making a left turn into a parking space on Sloan Street? That's correct. Prosecutor is moving to amend that to a violation of Title 39, 4-67. Again, obstruction of traffic. You understand the amendment that's being proposed? I do. And you're pleading guilty to obstructing traffic through the maneuver of making a left turn into the parking space? If I'd been paying more attention to Judge Barry Austin's 22-minute introductory speech, I think I might have avoided what came next. Remember this? I have to accept your guilty plea. I have to evaluate that plea to determine that it is an acceptable plea according to the standards and the guidelines that I have to follow. I was not paying attention at all. When I stood in front of the judge, he told me he had to establish a factual basis for my plea. I was pleading guilty to obstructing the flow of traffic. So he asked, did I obstruct the flow of traffic by making that left-hand turn? If I had just answered yes, I would have been fine. But I didn't remember any cars, and I was still hoping that when he understood my situation, he'd give me a break on the fine. So here's what I said when he asked, were you obstructing the flow of traffic? There were no other cars around, but I understand it's... 
it, it, it would eat the flour. <laughs> yeah, yes. yes. No, no, it doesn't sorry. work like that, I'm sorry. sir. It doesn't work like that. I need a factual basis. Okay. If there was no other vehicles, then... There, were, there are other vehicles in the area. No, no, you can't... <laughs> you can't acknowledge to me on the record that yeah. there were no other vehicles and then say that you impeded traffic. I can't accept it. May I give a fuller explanation? Can I give a fuller explanation? God, who talks like that? Me, I guess. I'd started doing that thing I'd seen other people do. I tried to use legal language I had no business using. I mean, I'm not going to allow you to just totally disavow what you've already said. If you want to explain it to me in a fashion that would bring you within the violation, I'll listen to that. But I don't want you to tell me, well... I can can tell you this, I just want to make sure you're understanding each other. All right, go ahead. Uh, It was coming off a circle. I went into the parking area. I made a left-hand turn. To my recollection, I do not recall any traffic coming in the opposite direction. So you don't recall that, you, in fact, you impeded the flow of traffic in either direction? If, if impeded the flow of traffic means there has to be a car present there at the time, then no. Okay, then I can't accept okay. this as a... I mean, I, I, there is no factual basis okay, sorry, upon I, which... I, I, I apologize. I am a person who is used to speaking in public. It's like my job. But I could barely think straight. In my head, this went on forever though apparently it was 3 minutes and 45 seconds, according to the tape. In the end, he refused to accept the plea bargain. You know how nervous I was coming into court that day? Well, uh, now I do. <laughs> it felt strange, but we talked about my case a little. Uh, I have to hope that you, you'd be satisfied with the outcome. But I, wasn't satis- not, I wasn't satisfied with the outcome. That's not my driving motivation. You know, it's more that the process work and that you're satisfied that the process worked. Even if you're dissatisfied with the outcome, that you're satisfied that the process worked. I certainly like admired your desire to apply the law in a clear way. Well, that's the job. I told him genuinely, I thought he had succeeded in his mission with me. It seemed fair. I'd learned something. He said, okay, one victory for the day. David Kestenbaum is one of the producers of our show. Our program was produced today by Susan Burton. Other staff, Zoe Chase, Dana Chivas, Sean Cole, Neil Drumming, Karen Duffin, Stephanie Fu, Hannah Joffrey Walt, David Kestenbaum, Seth Lynn, Mickey Meek, Jonathan Menhivar, Christopher Swatala, Robin Semyon, Willie Sullivan, Matt Tierney, Nancy Updike, and Diane Wu. Music help today from Damian Grave. Special thanks today to the Resurrection Project in Chicago, Tara Ragavir at the Partnership for New Americans, Maria Zamudia, Virginia Laura, Luis Antonio Perez, Kate Lincoln Goldfinch, Andrew Free, Kalai Shintani, Kavai Kanahele, Lucinda Fleeson, Jan Tenbrugen Kante, George. Stever, Robin Purdy, Lynn McNutt, Don Heacock, Ryan Bancroft, John Franklin, and North State Public Radio. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, before going into public radio, he trained for years in the space program as an astronaut, but decided not to go on his mission to the International Space Station when he learned about everything he was going to have to leave behind. Like not having any snacks, not having any Legos, not having anything fun. Yeah. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. If I-